GoTerra is a technology startup. We are a deep tech startup and we are doing first in the world things. But everything we do is smelly and heavy and hurts physically and emotionally. Take time to remind yourself why you're here, what we're actually trying to fight. It isn't the investors and it isn't the kombucha bar. We're doing climate tech for a reason and it's because we're in a climate crisis. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. I am your host, Florian, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this brand new podcast where we meet with the founders building the technologies to get us to net zero. We live in the defining decade for climate. We have until 2030 to halve our emissions. In Scaling Climate Tech, we will understand how these incredible climate technologies work and if and how they can replace fossil solutions, not over the next century, but in the next 10 years. On this very first episode, we meet with Olympia Jagger, founder and CEO of Gotera. Gotera is an ag tech startup that has built an autonomous system that breeds insects using organic waste as a feedstock. You can picture this as a shipping container with a robotic system that takes in organic waste on one side, breeds insects, and produces protein as an output on the other side. I was very excited by this one because Gotera is at the intersection of two incredibly important climate themes, agriculture and waste. Olympia is a truly passionate founder who was combining Gotera, her love for farming, with her desire to have a true climate impact. So, Olympia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How fun was this? It is. I'm very excited to have you on the very first episode of Scaling Climate Tech. And not only because of Gotera, and we'll talk about it extensively today, but because you are a climate tech founder that has discovered an insect, and this is not something you come across every day. Well, just to be clear, I didn't discover the insect. A very smart scientist that I know discovered the insect and he kindly gave it, named it after me, which is like potentially the coolest honor ever in the history of cool honors ever. And I actually still don't know what to do with it. Like I want to tell lots of people about it, but it's kind of this random mouthful where it's like, Hey, a scientist who's really amazing went into the dane tree and found this species of black soldier fly that nobody had known before. And now it's got my name. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Like I just, um, yeah. So to save all that trouble, I just tattooed it on myself. <laughs> I was going to say you can have a painting, but that's, that's far better. That is incredible. So that's the way I get to have it with me all the time. And. Sometimes as Australians, it's really difficult to champion ourselves. We're not really good at, um, sort of celebrating our wins individually. And, um, it's actually been this really lovely reminder that people think what, what we're doing here at GoTerra is really important and good reminder that the work we're doing matters. Well, that's definitely very impressive. And I recommend everyone to Google the Hermesia Olympia, and that's a very bad Latin pronunciation. It's a very good looking, uh, soldier fly. <laughs> she is. A Coolest of all the soldier flies. <laughs> so I'd like to touch together upon the set of topics on Gotera and your personal journey. I would like to go back on why you've decided to work in climate and um, why spark your interest on insects specifically. 
how you came about the idea of Gotera and how you proved that this idea, which can sound far-fetched initially, actually works in reality. And how over the last year you've scaled that company and what is your vision for the years to come and how big of a company and environmental impact this could have. Are you ready for this program? Let's do it. Let's get after it. So can you start by introducing us to Gotera? What do you guys do? Yeah, so Gotera is a autonomous food waste management company, and we deliver fee-for-service waste management using robots that get insects to do a job. We currently, the robotic system that we're sort of most focused on right now is a food waste management system. And this is about not just stopping at the idea of using a different thing to manage waste, but the understanding and belief that the fundamentally our farming systems are broken, our industrial processes are broken, our supply chains and logistics are broken. We know these things are true. And so if that's true, the innovation that serves us and, and is being created for our future can't just recreate existing systems with new overtones, right? And, and so when you look at conventional agriculture, um, they are intensive farming systems, uh, whether they're grass fed or shed or grain raised, it's all still intensive farming systems. And so when I started looking at insects as an opportunity to create protein in the world, in all I saw was a recreation of the existing intensive farming systems, which are largely broken and, and are challenged by logistics and supply chains and, and commodities every day. And so for me, it didn't feel like an innovation to just use a different kind of animal and call it different. It's the same process, just with a different animal. And so we set about to actually figure, see if we could change the way we found these insects to see if that could then, you know, upside down or change what, what was actually the problem around waste and then subsequently farming. And in doing so, could we unlock capability to uh, pursue a circular economy? So that's where we're at. Maggot robots. It's the, it's the newest thing. There's a lot of uh, exciting words to unpack here. Maggot robots, <laughs> insect proteins. You've talked about supply chain and, and farming system that we have. So I have so many questions on all the themes. I would like to just go back before going into more into the technology to really the origin story of this company. And how did you come about the idea of breeding insects, leveraging waste as a resource for insects? I've stalked you on LinkedIn. You've worked in digital photography. You've worked briefly at Wells Fargo. You have a, a degree in agricultural management and sustainable development. What is the story of how you came about to be interested in maggot robots and insects overall? For me, it's been about, you know, just wanting to farm. So I started in conventional agriculture and that's where I wanted to stay. And I was mostly interested in what it looks like in the new world where we are constrained by climate and supply chains and insects. You know, the premise of insects is that we will take waste, which not currently used, and we will create a protein. And in doing so, we will have improved the capacity of the world to produce protein and fill the shortfall. The reality is that there is waste that we can do that with, but that waste is not clean and it's not easy to manage and it is really distributed. 
And so it's largely unmanaged at this time because the current process of collecting waste in in bins, driving long distances, is not economically feasible for that type of waste stream. So it's very end of life. People don't want to care about it. It's largely contaminated and it's not in big loads. And so the return on investment for using the conventional model for collecting and managing this waste stream is, is not realized. And so for what, what we were, when I started looking at insects, it was about how much food do I have to feed these things to make the protein that fulfills the promise? And the reality is that you can look at it two ways. You can take clean organics, this idea of agricultural residuals and manufacturing waste streams and all of those things, and you can spend more money valorizing that into an insect. All you're doing is robbing the existing agricultural supply chain for feedstock um, and you're playing in the smallest segment of waste and coincidentally the one where the most venture capital is being spent in innovation to prevent it. So I consider that portion of the waste profile non-scalable because I know that in a drought there is no brewer's grain, there is no biscuit waste, there are no bread factories because the cattle farmers and the sheep farmers of our country have, are sourcing that waste stream for themselves. And in a fight over who gets that substrate, uh, insect farming's going to lose. And so my job was to say, if this is actually going to do the job that we say it's going to do, it needs to manage waste, not wasted food. Because if we all, if we're all on the same train and we believe that this is about the circular economy, then we would never want to valorize already valuable products through an insect because they don't need further valorization. They can just go back to supply chain. So for me, it's, it was about understanding that that was what was going on when I was pursuing those cleaner waste streams and deciding whether or not we wanted to tackle the very difficult challenge of managing stuff that nobody wants to manage. And they don't want to manage it for a reason because it's hard. Once we're at this Tesla moment of Gotera is everywhere, mainstream, fully penetrated in the markets and driving the industry. What is the impact on the climate? How does that change the challenge of food waste and emissions related to, to waste? Yeah. So everybody looks at food waste and just looks at the immediate emissions of managing that waste. And if you could just remove that methane gas emission from you know, food waste not being managed properly, then that, you know, inherently is the return on investment for doing a better job. But again, the distribution of waste, the cost of managing waste, the energy intensiveness of managing waste are all leading contributors to climate change as well. Being able to create circular economy back into our communities is going to be core. And so Again, not just in the solving of the solution, but also in the way we've solved the solution, you should be seeing not just reduction of emissions from how we've managed it, but the reduction of emissions from the way we are managing it. So less transportation. So instead of every day or every other day, you're doing every 12 days for on-sites, giving regional and rural communities who usually miss out on infrastructure capabilities for waste because they have less ratepayers in their constituency, giving them access to infrastructure so that they can play in this space and contribute to 
circular economy and have that capability in their regions, that also creates opportunity because these are this is where these waste streams are largely untouched. Those sorts of things, I think, is where we are sort of ratcheting up the value proposition outside of just magnet seed waste, and that means less methane, which is, you know, sure, but also how much waste are you going to be able to capture with this very large centralized idea? That's the difference, I think, for us. Okay, let's take a break here. Olympia has just raised two important climate concepts on waste that we will unpack. One is the methane emissions from waste, and two is the challenge of distributed waste. So what is the climate impact of waste and how can we reduce it? Waste emissions can be broken down into. The first one are emissions related to organic materials, which are about half of our waste. These are household food waste primarily, but also agricultural manure, for instance. When you leave organic waste in a landfill, it starts decomposing and it emits methane, a gas that's 34 times more potent than CO2. The other source of emission is mainly due to recyclable materials that represent the other half of our waste. These are primarily plastics and paper, but also metal and glass to a smaller proportion. When a recyclable material is not recycled, that requires the creation of a new virgin material that not only requires the extraction of the components from the mines, for instance, from metal, but also requires a significant amount of energy to produce. Now, to minimize climate impact, there is this waste management theory called the 3R that classifies waste management approaches based on how desirable they are. The first R is the most desirable approach, is to reduce our waste. The best waste is always the waste that doesn't exist. This can be done by redesigning products to make them lighter, using less material, but also by removing any packaging that's not useful. Think of your favorite coffee shop offering you a real cup if you're taking your coffee in the shop rather than providing a plastic cup that you will throw out later. The second R is reuse. If you can't avoid using the material, let's avoid throwing it out and creating waste and use it for a very similar function as it was originally intended. A good example of that approach is Loop, a US startup that sells groceries in aluminum or glass containers. Once you're out of your favorite cereals, you can just return that package to Loop who will clean it and reuse it for your next cereal order. The third is to recycle. It's not as good as just reusing the product in its original form as it requires energy to process and there are technological limits to recycling. Depending on the material, you can't recycle everything forever, but it's a great way to return the product to the value chain while minimizing the impact. Recycled aluminum, for instance, requires 95% less energy than producing virgin aluminum. You can recycle metals, glass, special electronic equipment, and paper and carbon products, for instance. For organics, recycling means turning it into a different organic material, and that's compost. Compost can then be used as a fertilizer in agriculture. Another way of recycling a product is to turn it into energy, and that's called waste to energy. It consists essentially in using the material as a feedstock to an energy production process that will produce electricity, heat, or fuel. The most common one is incineration. You burn the waste and you capture the heat and electricity produced. It's often not well perceived because it is a source of pollution, which it is, but it can also be a great solution for countries that have a very carbon intensive electrical grid relying on coal, for instance. The second one are methane digesters. They're large containers that let organic matter decay without oxygen and capture the release gas. This gas can be purified to become what's called renewable natural gas that can be injected into the gas system. 
Finally, biofuels can be produced by burning certain materials like plastics without oxygen. That's a process called pyrolysis. And that's a way to replace traditional fuels in cars, for instance, by blending biofuels with traditional fuel. Now that's for a theory. Let's look at the reality of how waste is managed today. And there are very different dynamics across Europe and the US. In Europe, there's a clear strategy to improve recycling rates with 40% of plastics that are now recycled across the EU. Some countries like Denmark, Sweden, or the Netherlands have even banned plastic from being landfilled and have about 50% of the plastic recycled and the other half that's burned for energy generation. For organic waste, it's very often collected and turned into compost or biogas. Denmark, for instance, has 25% of its gas consumption coming from waste biogas facilities, and they have the ambition to achieve 100% over the next decade. In North America, so Canada and the US, they have a very similar situation. There are very low recycling rates overall. For plastics, only 10% of them are recycled. The rest goes to landfill primarily. And while there are dedicated collection systems for organics, the adoption remains quite low to date. So across all the waste streams, more than half of that waste goes to landfill in the US today. To be honest, the first time I discovered these numbers, I was shocked because we don't know what we don't see. We put your plastic cup or the container in the recycling bin and we just assume that the problem is solved. The reality is that across the US, nine chances out of 10 that this plastic will end up in one of the 2,000 landfills across the country. You don't see those landfills. They are in faraway places, typically in the same counties that have slaughterhouses and prisons that you also never see. This is why waste in the US is producing as much methane as the agricultural sector. One way of reducing these emissions is to set up this 3R approach we talked about earlier. One, reduce our waste. Two, rely on reuse and circular models. And three, improve recycling and composting facilities. This is 100% true for large waste streams, but becomes more difficult for what Olympia was referring to, small distributed sources of waste, which brings us to our second topic, decentralized waste management. The challenge of waste management is that it requires expensive infrastructure. Incinerators are large facilities that cost several millions, and recycling plants need large machines that need very big waste streams every day to be profitable. That's fine when you handle the waste of New York City or Los Angeles, but not so much when you handle the waste of a rural area with only sparsely populated cities. It doesn't make sense to build that infrastructure for very few people, and it doesn't make sense to transport the waste over long distances. One of the pivotal idea of Gotera is to be able to decentralize waste management and to move away from this idea of a single high-cost facility to replace it with small units that can scale to the needs of a building, a village, or a city. So when Olympia says she doesn't want to compete with this conventional waste management system, she means that Gotera is not a substitute to these existing waste energy, composting, or recycling facilities. It is a technology that's here to address the waste streams that are not being well managed today, specifically in the sparsely populated areas. You've raised uh, a bit more than 10 million from various Australian investors and your team of 20 people strong, I believe. So this is all very real today. Can you give us a sense of how far along you are in the deployment of, of this technology and this solution? 
Yeah. So we're actually at 45, 46 humans now. And we are commercial. So we are a deep tech organization that has commercialized rapidly. And so we have deployed our units in the three ways that are represented in our business model. So our plant, which is a centralized landfill-like system that accepts waste in aggregated loads and manages it and also funnels a colony of insects to supply. We have deployed a stack, which is a uh, unit that manages the waste. And then you've also got the receival of, um, so you can accept aggregated loads at a waste transfer station, or you can sit at a manufacturing plant and manage packaged and contaminated wastes and deliver a fee-for-service in that way. And so that's decentralized. Or you can deploy this to the site where waste is created. And that's a single unit with a waste receivable. And that's usually for clean organics that have no or limited contamination and packaging. So we have this ability to sort of meet our customer where they are, deliver a service that creates opportunity and capability for them, but without really disrupting or changing any of the things that they have been doing normally, which is putting their food waste in a bin or onto a conveyor and, and getting it managed. So we are now in the sort of scale part of our execution where we will continue to roll out units and, and plants across Australia and, and into the US as we continue to grow. So you're in 2015 or 2016. You have this idea maybe on a paper or I don't know, PowerPoint that you could use some waste stream to grow insect protein and have fertilizer as well. How do you test if that actually works in practice in a lab or in a real environment? Yeah, I, maybe I had the benefit of not being an engineer because I didn't spend a lot of time in the lab. I think when you spend too much time trying to understand things like that, you can inadvertently find yourself choosing paths of least resistance. And even now we do that where our engineers and our technicians will say, can you tell them to not put that in there? And I'm like, I can tell them all day long, but they're not going to stop. And so you must somewhere find uh, a space to be able to acknowledge the reality of what you're trying to achieve. Because otherwise you end up building prototypes that are able to manage our substrate by accepting it and giving it to insects, but you haven't solved a waste problem because as soon as you try and tip somebody's household waste in there or, you know, something from a fast food kitchen and it's got plastic in it, are you actually going to even be able to move that through the system? And we, sometimes we still can't because people put weird things in their bins. So. We started instead with, can I make insects live in a box? So like, which was harder than it looks, which is funny because most people will like find maggots in their bins without even trying. And I was trying to get maggots to be in a bin and they're like, no, thank you. So that was first. And then the second part was how can we pack them densely enough to get the volume we need? Uh, without them getting upset and, you know, moving, jumping out of their box or, you know, they're not having great airflow or any of those other things. And then from there, how do we convey the material that we know we're going to get the stuff that's going to get stuck and broken? And, and it's really difficult because it's demoralizing. GoTerra is a technology startup. We are a deep tech startup and we are doing first in the world things, but everything 
we do is smelly and heavy and hurts physically and emotionally. Yeah, when we have a failure, it's usually food waste on the ceiling and maggots on the floor and a very big robot that's broken and needs to be fixed, but is so big that you don't almost don't want to touch it because you know how much effort and energy is going to take to pull it apart. And, you know, building a team that has the courage to do that every day and wants to do that every day. <laughs> Oddly enough, there's not a heap of mechanical design engineers walking around going, you know what I dreamed about? Walking around in food waste. That was, that was a strong goal of mine in, in university. So those are the things that they're sort of the trajectory of how we got here. But the reality was we just sort of kept our heads down and we're Okay, if we're going to do this, we ha it has to be lots of it. There has to be high throughput. It has to be in a contained box. So how do we do that? Oh, crap, the waste is really bad. Like, how do we manage it? What's the acceptance tolerance we're going to try for? That didn't work. Try again. What else is there? So lots of trial and error. And in that first phase when you were building that prototype, is there a story you're mentioning, the robot breaking down, food on the wall? Is there a story that comes out to your mind on, on those early days? There's so many. I think that one of the, the biggest, the one that where we realized what waste really was and where we understood exactly what we were trying to say we could do and, and where we all had to take a bit of a deep breath and go, oh, I'm not sure if, you know, like, do we actually want to do this? Was the first load of waste from a festival. So we'd achieved a contract to manage the waste from a very prominent festival. It was going to be our first tips load of waste. So you normally it's just bins, but at that stage, and then this was going to come in a big skip. It arrived and they tipped it out and it was, you know, a couple of nearly 10 tons or something like that. And 90% of it was packaging and probably 60% of that packaging was skewers. So big, sharp wooden sticks. And it was just, we all just stood there and stared at it. And we were like, oh, find out. Like, you know, this was not what we'd anticipated. This was not, we had not understood what this means or what this looked like or how it was going to come. And we couldn't even fathom how we were going to manage it. And, and so it was just this really crappy five hours of manually going through this huge pile, the whole team. And that was when we all sat down and went, okay, how do you even manage this at scale? Because this isn't unique. This is what waste is. This is what this is going to look like forever, or at least in the interim. And so how do we make sure that what we do and how we do it can manage that? Because this is the client's problem, right? And we're supposed to be solving it. And we can't create more problems for them by saying, we don't want to solve that problem. Can you give us a different problem to solve? Right? Like, <laughs> that's not how it worked. That was the big reality check around what we needed to communicate to customers, what the reality of real waste is. Clean organics is a misnomer. Waste organics is contaminated, period. You did mention that your deep tech startup, it takes years or a very long time to get to the, the final or viable product rather that's ready for market. The festival was probably an early iteration. When do you feel that you reach a stage where the product is commercially ready? 
and which customer did you have at that point where you considered it to be the first commercial customer for Gotera? Yeah, so technically our first commercial customer happened 2018, a little bit earlier. But the first commercial client was Lendlease Bremer Tower 2. Um, so that was our first deployed unit in a precinct. And so that was October of 2020. So that's a really fast commercialization. Our tech is a TRL9, but the challenge for us is not whether or not our machines work, it is the intersection of where biology and machines meet and where they have to be able to manage the inputs of humanity. Making sure that at speed you can deliver processes so that your production systems have no errors, your technology solution is operationally capable, and that's not just that the tech works. You've got to make sure you've got all of the assets that have to go out into the world with a heavy piece of industrial equipment, all of the delivery docks. How do you get one of these to market? What does it mean for a customer when one arrives? What are the machines that get it on and off a truck? There's just a volume of work that has to be done. For sure, my production manager and I were just talking the other day when, and he was like, I, I hate that we commercialize this fast. Because the pressure on the production team to make no errors is immense. And they are dealing with biological systems that have failures every now and again. And so, you know, how do you balance that as a company? We have raised a minimal amount of funds. Technically, you know, we've only raised 9.2 million Australian. That's a lot of work for a very short period of time for not a lot of people and not a lot of money. We expect for areas of the business to continue to commercialize and become more mainstream and more operational. The R&D will evolve into the more, the, the next sort of evolution of how else we can get insects to do a job and how to improve the efficiencies of what we do. We expect as we scale, those things will get easier to sort of manage because we'll have more humans. They won't be easier tasks, but they'll just be a little easier to manage because we'll have more resources. But technically, for all intents and purposes, we are commercial and we are in market. And that was a decision I ended up making after the seed round because I looked at the intech protein industry and a lot of the investors we were talking to loved what we did, but were really worried about the fact that we were insects and that none of the intech protein companies they'd looked, like, looked at had been able to unlock distribution or access enough volume or achieve scale. And so the appetite for the insect protein industry had sort of flat, flattened a little bit. And so the idea that I'd get to do it another round and not do some meaningful commercialization just did not feel, it didn't seem like I was going to, that was going to be an opportunity. And so you're really working to get good commercialization contracts in that were related to volume was sort of a key part of getting that next funding round. What's unique about your company is not only that you're a deep tech company, you are a farming company, you are a waste management company, you are handling hardware, which is very big. It's a shipping container. You are developing IoT, software, environmental sciences, robotics. So there are so many skills and components that need to go into the Gotera product. And you touched upon it already on, on the challenge of producing this at scale. How do you envision the next five, 10 years? What are the biggest challenges that you, you are facing to really scale? I know you're operating in Australia today and you have a global vision. What are the biggest challenges to achieving that scale and the climate impact scale that comes with it? 
Yeah, it's a lot of verticals, right? Like technically we own biological hardware, software, and, and of course your incoming waste streams and the R&D that go with all of those. But that's what it means to do a first in the world thing. You can't not own the verticals because the supply chain doesn't exist. So you have to kind of prop yourself up by owning those sort of front and back ends a little bit. I expect, and what we have planned for is that as we continue to engage and, and our customers continue to imagine us in their lives and, and how we can lend value that we will own a little less and less of our verticals as we continue to grow. You know, so we will unlikely hold manufacturing forever. We will get to a place where our software can be more just managed instead of ongoing sort of R&D and development and things like that. And so you'll see this leveling out as the company matures and can start to just do its job rather than holding all of the components of the parts that are required for it to live in the world. I think when you think about challenges, there are those that are inherent to making that true because it's a lot that it's uh, ambitious and it's, yeah, yeah, just more engineers or something. But yeah, like I think first you cannot in any way discredit the challenges of finding the humans. I think the right people to come into an organization, to see that vision, to buy into the vision and who have the tenacity to deliver on a vision like ours is difficult and is also not something we should take for granted. You know, try to remember why people came here, try to make sure that we are an organization that makes people want to stay and that when they are finished with us and that it's time for their next piece, that 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 movement actually promotes the organization in the world so that we can keep, continue to attract great talent. So that, I think that's the biggest challenge, but I think it's a challenge for any organization. Second, I think is sort of around how capital intensive infrastructure and technology is looked at by venture. It is a difficult kind of business to be a founder for because venture is more aligned with SaaS and sort of hasn't yet figured out how it wants to think about hardware. You know, there are some exceptional hardware investment firms out there for sure, but you know, on the money, if you look at companies that are comfortable with hardware and companies that are comfortable with SaaS, she's a pretty small number on this, on the, on the one side. And so inherently that, that is a difficult then piece. You've got to find a way to sell your business in the way you do business in a way that makes sense for investors in a way that it appeals to the thesis that they have and doesn't sort of cause uh, fear or the concern around sort of the more stereotypical opinions of hardware. Uh, I think that's a difficult thing for any climate tech company that, um, because most of those climate tech companies are hardware. And so that, that's a challenge I think we're all facing. And then, you know, just keeping the wheels on commercializing a deep tech company is a lot about customer success and managing the expectations of your customers around what you can deliver and how and being transparent when you failed or when you need support or their understanding. And so ensuring that our customers are never forgotten on the journey and that there are, they, they continue to be part of the story that we're building and the, and the journey that we're on, I think is, is going to be critical to success. So a few, a few moving parts just to keep it interesting. Should keep the next few years exciting. The, the point you just made about hardware being hard and capital intensive, I think is really resonates in the climate transition we're knowing, we're, we're lucky to see a lot of capital flowing to climate solutions. Fully, that is something that investors are 
also learning along the way on how to manage deep tech companies and capital intensive hardware companies, which fully align with you is very different from the, the software way we could have seen the, over the last decade. You've been building this company for several years to where it is today. It's a complex, it's a tech heavy, it's an operation heavy company. Maybe a more personal question. How have you felt about this journey? Maybe not when you were cleaning the festival food waste from that container, but more broadly over those years. And if you could do it again, is there something you would do differently? Yeah, that's a good one. I've, I've actually recently spent some time really thinking about what my relationship with this organization is because it, I'm not a work-life balance. I like to work. It's always, as a woman, it feels a lot like a privilege to be able to just like really just work and not have to worry about anything else. And so I love to work. And so therefore my I am balanced is kind of how I generally feel about things. I'm told that's unhealthy, but it's certainly, this is where I get a lot of my joy and a lot of my satisfaction and feeling of completeness. I've never been more proud of something that I've made. And so to see these people come to work, to see them have meetings, to watch them take the idea that myself and some really young interns started and, and watch them breathe life to it and fan those flames. Like it just feels like an immense privilege pretty much daily to be fair. And so because I've thought about that a lot and I've tried to really understand when it gets hard, why does it feel hard? When I get scared, why do I feel scared? You know, if you are so proud of something, why are you so scared? Cause it's not always that it's going to fail. It's also that maybe it won't work or whatever. I think actually the way we've approached this has been largely the right way. You could look back and go, oh, maybe I would have brought in an operations person earlier, or maybe we should have not accepted more waste this day and that day we could have gone a little slower here. But the reality is we, we don't have time. And I don't say that in a smashing and kind of way, but let's like, this is the last decade that we have to truly try to make a difference. And it's almost like we've all seen that movie where there's the flashback and then the kids, and then they go to present time and the kids are like, sort of talking to their parents who have the reflection. And, and I think about that with my kid, what would I say to them when we realize just how much damage we've made and how will I reflect on how I spent my time? And I have this overwhelming sense that I will come to regret how many times I didn't yell louder or go faster or do more. I have, I sense that as a thing. And so you can sort of tie the edges of whether or not you had the right strategy or you could have hired a person earlier or held off a little longer on commercializing, but I don't think we have time. And so I don't think that there was a lot that I would change, frankly, about where we're at. Just go ahead and do it. And, and you're part of the club of unreasonable companies. And this sounds a lot like this is a very ambitious mission that we have. Trial and error will, will show us the way. And, and this is what we need to, to go ahead and do. Right. Yeah. Like um, I, I think, like I said, we could have trialed and errored slower. Um, but I don't know if you actually, I think sometimes. And there's always a balance, but I think sometimes you need that pressure to innovate. You need the pressure that you don't have enough money 
You don't have any time. You must deliver because somebody outside your organization needs you to for that real, find out what, what could I use to make this work? What else might happen? I, there is a complacency that comes. Um, and we saw a little glimpse of it when we raised the second round, cause it was a lot more money. And, um, and we've, for a brief moment in time, we went down that path of looking at off shelf staff and, um, you know, things that have been used before for other use cases, even though we'd already tried similar things and they hadn't worked. And we told ourselves, oh, but you know, this thing's made by the Germans. And so it, it's gotta be good. And then inevitably, you know, we had this one thing where we'd spent a thousand dollars building a piece of equipment that we thought would work and it did, but it kept jamming. And, and then the, the effort it took to dismantle it and pull everything out of it and then put it all back together was like doing that on site is just not an option. And then we found an almost exact same thing that of course the manufacturer was like, never jams and it's great and it'll, this will solve all your problems. And we bought one and it was, you know, $6,000 and, um, wouldn't you know it, same problem. In fact, it's been less reliable than what we first started with. So yeah, I think. I think sometimes it's really hard to trust yourself that you have the ability to, you know, and it's so easy to leverage like brands and be like, oh, well, you know, those guys have sorted it out. But like, yeah, I think sometimes you've got to trust that you've really got the people on board to make these decisions. And, and, and like I said to the team, if this was easy, someone else would have already have done it. You, you can't lose sight of the fact that this was supposed to be hard. It wasn't ever going to be easy. And so we should stop sort of being angry that it isn't and just instead go, okay, we knew that this is where we were going to be. How do we, how do we work through this and, and fix it rather than, um, change something so that it makes it easier. Yeah. If you had one recommendation to make a book, a podcast, a movie, anything for someone to learn more about could be insects. It could be waste management. It could be farming, any theme that you hold dear. I'll give you a buffet of things. I think the podcast pivot as a founder, trying to sort of understand uh, more tech language and be more, um, have better acumen for speaking to sort of venture has been really valuable. So it hasn't, it's been a, it's a just really good podcast to sort of get good insights on tech. It's largely software and big tech, but still very good. Uh, it's funny as well. I want Scott Galloway to be my friend. Um, Scott, if you're out there, call me dude. And then movie is Starbuck, which is a French Canadian film. Watch it. It is beautiful and glorious and funny and probably the best movie of all time. And then when it comes to ag. The best podcast out there is AgTech So What, which just talks across all kinds of food systems and agriculture, digs into the, the dirty stuff that we all know nobody ever wants to speak about, but really pushes on some of those core assumptions that we've had about our food systems. Are they right? Should they be right? How can we be different? And, and there's never really a constant theme aside from agriculture and the food systems. Great recommendations. One last question. Is there one thing I did not ask you or that you would like to share on your journey so far? 
the one thing I'd, I'd probably share with other founders that are on this journey is that thing I just sort of said a little earlier, it's going to hurt emotionally and physically. If you're doing it right, it's going to hurt your team. And that's not about whether or not we have good culture or bad culture. It's just what happens when you put high performing people into a room and ask them to do something that's never been done in the world. It will push on all of the stuff that makes things difficult. And I just think Take time to remind yourself why you're here, what we're actually trying to fight. Like, what's the point? It isn't the investors and it isn't the kombucha bar. It's, you know, we're here, we're, we're doing climate tech for a reason. It's because we're in a climate crisis. Um, so keep that as you hold on to that little tiny ledge and remember that why you're here and, and, and that's why it's worth doing. And I'll see you at work. Olympia, thank you for coming to the show and for sharing your story in all transparency. This has been such an inspirational discussion. I'm super excited to see how Gotera will keep scaling in the coming years. And I wish you the best of luck to you and to the team. Thanks, you too. Have a great afternoon. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation with Olympia. If you want to deep dive on some of the topics we touched upon, you'll find links with detailed material in the show notes, including a picture of the Olympia's solar fly. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on whichever podcast platform you listen to. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you all on our next episode.